Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Ryan Stackers. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Eric Weitz about his new book, Weimar Germany, Promise and Tragedy. This is an updated edition with a new chapter released just this fall, so still hot off the Princeton University Press, and I must say, a rare gem. Encompassing in its scope, Weimar Germany manages to encapsulate the rich complexity of the short-lived republic's political, economic, intellectual, and cultural life, blending it with vivid stories that weave into an overarching narrative. Weitz synthesizes a staggering amount of research in what Hobsbawm has aptly described as a superb introduction, probably the best out there. Well, it has been said that history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme, and Weimar Germany has much to say that echoes in the here and now. But enough from me. Eric Weitz has been so good as to join us to talk about Weimar Germany today. So without further ado, Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So before we dig into the book, what led you to the study of history? Oh, I wanted to be a historian for about as long as I can remember. And I actually went to college, State University of New York at Binghamton, thinking I would uh, study Russian and Soviet history. Partly that was the outcome of family background, East European Jewish immigrants from the Russian Empire who were my grandparents, partly also the outcome of new left politics uh, when I was in high school and college in the 1960s and early 1970s. But then in college, I had a wonderful course in German history by George Stein, who wrote early a book on the Waffen-SS, but then went into academic administration. And I was drawn into German history. But unlike many of my colleagues, I think, who were drawn into German history because of their interest in the Nazis and the Holocaust, it's part of my interest as well. But I was especially interested in the history of the German left, Germany had the largest social democratic party in the world in the early in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and then the largest mass-based communist party outside of the Soviet Union in the 1920s. I was also interested in all of the political, social and cultural experimentation of the 1920s. So for me writing this book was really a labor of love. So what do you hope that the reader will take away from this book? I hope the reader will understand that Germany had a profoundly democratic tradition as well as the authoritarian tradition, that the Nazis were never inevitable. The Weimar Republic was not a prelude to the Third Reich, as such a kind of uh, the, the first chapter in the Third Reich is one often hears in essence from from commentators and even from fellow historians. I wanted to write the Republic sort of as it was in its own time, not constantly looking forward to the disaster that ensued. It all ended terribly. We know that worse than anyone at the time could have imagined with the emergence, with the Nazi seizure of power. But I deliberately left the Nazis for the very end of the book. So I wanted to give the Republic its due as a place of important political, social, cultural innovation and, ex- and experimentation. Well, 
you begin at the beginning, as it were, tracing the different experiences and effects of demobilization after the First World War. Yeah. You describe the German Revolution of 1919 as chaotic, yet creative. Could you sketch events for us and explain what you mean by that? Well, the revolution as such began with the mutiny of sailors at the end of October 1918. Everyone knew the war was coming to an end, and the German Navy, which had done little except try to run the British blockade in 1915 in the North Sea unsuccessfully, and run U-boat warfare that brought the United States into the war, not the brightest of all military strategies. They had mostly sat in port, and the resentment of rank-and-file sailors against their officers was great. Officers ate very nicely while sailors were given extremely poor rations. And when the sailors were given orders to stoke the boilers to send the ships out to sea, when everyone knew the war was coming to an end, they mutinied for good reason. Nobody wants to be the last soldier or sailor to die in a war. And they set up a council, a Soviet. And from there, the sailors spanned out, spread out through the rest of the country and spread the news of revolution and all over the country, in factories, in, in army units, workers and soldiers councils were established. That was the creative side of the revolution. Now, of course, revolutions are chaotic. No one knows what is going to happen ultimately. But the revolutionaries' demands were certainly for an end to the war, certainly by this point for an abdication of the Kaiser, the old regime having lost all legitimacy whatsoever, and some forms of popular control over the economy and some form of democratic participation that is not simply a parliamentary democracy, but what is often called the third way, something between a parliamentary democracy and Soviet-style communism, a democracy that would have strong inflections of socialism. Now, the revolution had great successes in the initial period, though they didn't, certainly did not go so far as some socialists would have liked. It did establish Germany as a parliamentary republic. The Weimar Constitution was probably the most democratic constitution in the world in the in 1920s. But those far-reaching demands for a kind of socialist democracy inspired a great deal of fear, not only from the middle and upper classes, but also on the part of more moderate social Democrats whose slogans were, whose slogan was, no experiments. And to be sure, Germany faced enormous problems as the soldiers came back home. The army had to be demobilized, disarmed. The economy had to be um, reshaped into a peacetime economy after it had been completely, almost completely focused on wartime production. 
The fears of Bolshevism were enormous, exaggerated in retrospect, certainly exaggerated, very exaggerated, but understandable at the time. And the more moderate socialists who made an alliance with the Catholic Party, the Catholic Center Party, and the Liberal Party, the Liberal Democratic Party, they ultimately prevailed in the formation of the republic. But still, workers won the eight-hour day, six and a half hours in the mines, uh, a commitment to worker involvement of some sort in the running of the factories and mines. And the revolution created a general spirit, you know, nothing one can ever quantify or define exactly of creativity and innovation. Lots of people will say that the Weimar Republic was born out of the disastrous experiences of World War I. And that is to be sure true, but that is only half the story. The other half, I argue in the book, is the creativity and innovative character of the revolution. Well, you move on to this absolutely brilliant walking tour of Berlin to illustrate just this point. As an aside, I would commend this to anyone listening as an example of what history can accomplish when it embraces its literary side. But digressions aside, you preface this whole discussion with the idea that Weimar was Berlin and Berlin was Weimar. (laughs) Could you talk us through some of these tensions that you explore between the different Berlins to say nothing of Berlin and the rest of Germany? Yeah, yeah, I've gotten some criticism for for that line from colleagues. Yeah, it's a it's a funny thing. Just just as an aside about historical writing, I was uncertain myself about that chapter. I, yeah, I very much wanted to give readers a sense of the city that was obviously the capital of Germany, but you know, the the capital of Weimar, uh, of Weimar Germany, and. Uh, I couldn't quite decide whether this chapter worked in that way. Just talking about the writing of history here. Mm-hmm. But it has proven to be a chapter that nearly everyone really, really likes. And most important, my editor liked it. And this book emerged out of conversation with my editor, Princeton University Press, Birgitta von Reinberg. So, um, yeah, I wanted to give readers a sense of what the city was like, of what the streetscape was like. And that meant using literary sources and moving around to different places. So uh, Berlin was, of course, a great early 20th century metropolis. It was a government center with all the official qualities that government buildings display, all the authority that government buildings display, but also a great shopping area. And the 1920s is the era when, it's not the era when department stores were born, that went back to the 19th century, but when they really flourish and they flourish architecturally because the new architecture enabled 
the uh, department stores to really open up shop windows so you could see on the look in from the streets uh, on these great displays. And uh, I mean, Germany even had a kind of guild of um, shop window designers, so to to say. So the street life is very, very active. And of course, women are out on the streets. The new woman of the 1920s, more independent, more, more engaged, more sexual, more active, is a part of the streetscape of Berlin. The public transportation predating 1914, but but especially after 1918, public transportation opened up those great areas in the western part of the city. The lake, many, many lakes in the woods opened it up to, to regular working people who, who toiled away in the city. And since one of the great achievements of the Republic was the reduction in the workday, workers could go out to those lakes and forests and enjoy them. It was, in a sense, a democratizing impact of the Republic, of these kinds of um, leisure activities that now that the Republic made possible to workers in in the city. It's also a great industrial city. It's also a city of enormous poverty. And I use especially Christopher Isherwood, the Berlin stories, to depict some of the really miserable living conditions in the inner city that Berlin's poor endured. You know, women having to scrub wooden floors clean, having to haul wood or haul coal or haul water still. Yet there were also great public housing projects that were built. Light, air, and sun was the motto of Germany's modernist architects who were politically engaged and were deliberately building buildings that could improve the lives of regular people, buildings that had indoor plumbing and gas lines for for stoves for cooking, so women would not have to haul wood from from up four stories and things like that. Um, all sorts of criticisms we could make today: the this kind the the internal archite- architecture. Uh, sort of embraced the nuclear family and the kitchen as the place for the woman. Nonetheless, these were all great, great improvements. And I enjoyed myself walking through many of these new housing projects and photographing them and getting a feel for them. Many of them are still there in Berlin. It is an amazing city. But as we turn to politics... You outline that in Weimar, they were loud, unruly, and remarkably democratic, yet also very radical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So to begin with, could you just briefly outline the political landscape for our listeners? The political landscape was fractured from the very beginning. Um, Communist Party was founded on January 1st, 1919 by Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht and others. Uh, that's on the left. The left was fractious itself, 
And then there are, there are six major political parties through most of the years of the Republic um, until the Depression in 1929. And then, you know, we, we start getting like 12, 24 minor political parties contesting every election. So you have this intensely fractured political landscape. So it is very, very difficult to construct governments. It's very, very difficult to master the many, many crises that Weimar did endure. And just as an aside at the moment, no one can ever prove or disprove this point, but it does seem to me that the political fragility of Weimar Germany is reflected in the cultural efflorescence of the Republic. I mean, there are places that are stable and boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and sometimes it's very good, <laughs> but um, boring doesn't translate into great culture. <laughs> right. Uh, so, you know, one has to take, 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 take one's pick. Ultimately, of course, this fracturing would enable the Nazis to destroy the Republic in collaboration with the older conservative elites. Still, through all of this, there were these great social improvements, many of them happening on the local level rather than the Reich level, the, uh, the, the national level. Some of them happening at the individual state level, pub, public health clinics, sex reform clinics, and, 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 and things like that. But you, you, you do have this chasm that between, say, the, even leaving aside the Nazis for a moment, between a religious conservative right believing in the sober Christian family and Christian morality between them and communists on the left, it's almost impossible to find any kind of middle ground. There's one line in particular that stuck out to me, quote, high stakes contention ruled Weimar politics and even minor issues were elevated into existential questions. Could you give us an example of what you mean by that? Well, for example, the, this law about schmutz and schande, a law about immoral, dirty literature and whether it should be censored or not. I mean, every party had a position on this. Every uh, parliamentary debate about this was escalated to uh, an issue about the existence of the Republic. If you were opposed to this law uh, uh, from the left, then the right said, you know, you were immoral and the Republic itself was immoral. And sometimes there'd be an anti-Semitic element to this, that this was a kind of Jewish position to be opposed to this. Um, And from... The right, this was a wedge issue, as we would say today, to discredit and delegitimize the republic. Um, even 
this is not a parliamentary issue, but even roof, architectural roofs, or the design of roofs had well, became politicized in Weimar. So that flat roofs, uh, a design signal of modernist architecture, was condemned from the right as Jewish architecture, uh, while the traditional German pitch roofs was seen as true German kind of architecture. And, and again, uh, it's not just an abstract argument over design in architectural journals, but a debate about the Republic itself. So if you designed or if you <laughs> supported or found attractive, aesthetically attractive book roofs with, that were flat, that meant you were a supporter of the Republic. And the attack on flat roofs was an effort to delegitimize the Republic itself. You trace many of the Republic's peculiar tensions to this collision of modernity and tradition. I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. Well, the 1920s, not just in Germany, but all across the Western world and beyond even into to, to Tokyo, is in many ways the high point of modernity, the era, as Detlef Boykert called it, of classical modernity. So what is modernity then becomes the issue? Well, Aesthetically, it's a rejection of many of the traditional form, German artistic forms from the 19th century, academic styles in painting, uh, heavy stone architecture, pitched roofs, those kinds of things, uh, direct representation in, in painting, uh, a commitment to authority rather than democracy and popular participation. So modernity meant uh, then the rejection of these traditional forms in, in art, in culture, in architecture, but also in politics. It meant a greater uh, demand for greater participation throughout not just the political system, but also the economy and society. It's a rejection of authority, the authority of tradition. And like, like everything else in Weimar, it was deep, deep conflicts between those who believed in modernity, saw it as energizing, exciting, new, and those who longed for a restoration of some idyllic past in their mind. The composer Kurt Weil is a good example. Uh, like George Gershwin in the United States, he uh, latched on to jazz idioms and composed great, great music uh, influenced by American jazz um, to the Three Penny Opera, of course, the most well-known, but, but, but much else besides. And the... Um, the, the, the innovative aspect of, uh, of jazz played such an important role for Kurt Weill. And Kurt Weill was a fan of the United States even before he was forced into exile into the United States. 
for more traditional Germans, the United States is the epitome of everything that is awful. It's democratic, it's multicultural, as we would now say, multiracial, multiethnic, and a threat to everything that Germany was supposed to represent. So here, too, these conflicts had an immediate political dimension. They were not just conflicts over aesthetics. So if we step away from the world of culture for a moment to examine economics, you look at the three crises that dominate the history of this period. Yeah. I was hoping you could sketch the events briefly and tell us a bit more about how they shaped the Weimar Republic. Yeah, in many ways, it's a case study for the worst conditions anyone would want to establish a new democracy. First comes uh, Reconstruction after World War I, which actually happens more quickly and, and, and easily. That is the switch from a wartime to a peacetime economy it happens better than anyone would have guessed at the time. Here, the sort of efficiency of the German bureaucracy and German business came into play in, in, a, in a positive fashion. But then, of course, Germany is overloaded with a reparations debt from the Weimar Peace Treaty. And that debt was not defined, the amount of that debt was not defined in the treaty, which Germany was compelled to sign. And that the treaty itself and the reparations debt shadows everything, everything uh, over Weimar politics and the Weimar economy in the 1920s and into the 1930s. So then there is the second great crisis is, of course, the crisis of hyperinflation in 1922 and 1923. It has multiple origins, but at its sort of peak in the summer and fall and, well, through, um, through almost the entire year of 1923, it is driven by two factors. First, that the French and Belgians occupied the Ruhr, one of Germany's most important industrial districts, and in, in, in retaliation for the fact that Germans had, Germany had played sort of fast and loose with its reparations payments to, to those countries. So uh, this was the attempt by France and Belgium to make sure that it received the reparations that they were owed. The German government responded with a policy of passive resistance. In other words, uh, Germans in the war were told that if French occupy a factory, for example, and demand the steel that is there or the chemicals that are there, uh, Germans should pursue a policy of passive resistance, should, should refuse to, to do anything uh, that the French demand. If the French move and Belgians move into a government office, government workers should, in essence, go on strike. Step by step, the industry in the Ruhr starts to shut down. And the government, to sustain the passive resistance policy, to sustain workers and owners in the Ruhr, just keeps printing money. 
just keeps printing money. And with the war shutting down, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine, an entire industrial region essentially shutting down economically, shutting down its productive forces. And that has ripple effects, of course, throughout the German economy. Quick really because, you know, factories in other areas can't get supplies that are produced in the Ruhr and so on. So industries, businesses throughout the country start shutting down. So the hyperinflation is, is just takes off in a, this wild, wild fashion such that by the fall of 1932, the German mark has become essentially worthless. Yeah, you probably know, probably many of your listeners have seen these photos of people pushing wheelbarrows full of money to go buy a loaf of bread or a pair of shoes. Those are the indelible images we have from the hyperinflation. But the hyperinflation also um, does more than impoverish many people, which it certainly does. It, it, it overturns the social order, the, 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 re, the re, social status in many ways. So we have many stories of professionals, of professors, for example, whose income becomes less than that of skilled workers who are reduced, whose families are reduced to making clothes out of the curtains or taking the leather from the, the dining room set to fashion shoes or to, or to repair shoes. I mean, the hyperinflation shoots at the very heart of the German status hierarchy. And if you were living on a fixed income, on a pension, for example, it you your pen you you end up scraping the bare essentials of life together. If you had some savings, which only you know begin at the the level of the most skilled most skilled workers uh, and and above who had savings, those savings became worthless. So the crisis is so immense that it, of course, saps at the legitimacy of the republic. Now, ultimately, the government institutes a new currency, and that in conjunction with negotiations uh, by United States bankers, not the United States State Department, but bankers with France, Belgium, Germany, leads to uh, the creation of fiscal stability. And from early 1924, we enter the so-called five years, the golden years of the Weimar Republic. But the hyperinflation is an indelible memory for Germans. And you, you can guess where this is heading. Uh, it, it gives more of an opening than in the Depression, the third great crisis, for those like the Nazis who want to attack the Republic. Then comes in 1929, the onset of the world economic crisis or the Great Depression as Americans call it. And it moves very, very fast from the United States to Germany. So that by 1932, 
one third of the German workforce is unemployed. And that coupled with the political fragmentation of which I spoke earlier, delegitimizes almost in total the Weimar Republic as a political system. Again, one, one couldn't even dream up a worse set of circumstances for a newborn democracy. Part of the responsibility lies with the Allies. They should have been smarter. John Maynard Keynes knew that in 1919. The Allies should have been smarter, should have been more supportive of the Weimar Republic as a new democracy rather than imposing reparations upon Germany to to such a degree that the Republic was always burdened with that fact. Well, as you pointed out already, uncertain times breed vibrant culture. And you use the Crystal Chain Group as a lens to begin your discussion of artistic movements during this period. Yeah. yeah. What, are, what are artists contributing to the broader Weimar culture? How are they being shaped by all this and what are they shaping? You know, we can talk about some of the great works known and to this day read, performed, viewed of Weimar culture. Even though he was hostile to to the Republic, Martin Heidegger's Being in Time, probably the most important philosophical work of the 20th century, Mm -hmm. Uh, Thomas Mann's Magic Mountain, Der Zauberberg, Brecht and and Weil's Three Penny Opera. So there are these um, individual works that... You know, people again still read, still still view, still discuss. Hugely important, but in the most general sense, I think Weimar culture is wrestling with what it means to be modern. What are the and what are the forms of expression that go with? being modern in this age of the automobile and you, you know the 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 photo we used on on the cover of Potsdamer Platz from 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 Cafe Osti on on Potsdamer Platz and you know one sees the automobile and people out on the street and people in 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 discussion the sense of hectic movement that is so much a part of modernity, that then gets captured, for example, in 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 Weil's um, score for the Three Penny Opera, gets captured in some of the Weimar films like Berlin Symphony of a City, um, sense of movement, of uh, of of excitement, of, of of constant constant activity, and is that something good? Or is there something that is lost by this hectic pace of modern life? That's what Weimar culture wrestles with. Now, some of the architects like Erich Mendelssohn and Bruno Tal, whom I uh, emphasize, I did not want to Right, I could not avoid Walter Gropius, but Gropius is so well known. Gropius and the Bauhaus are so well known mm. that I didn't. I, I wanted to focus on 
other architects and uh, frankly architects whom I like more and <laughs> whose building aesthetically I like more than the strict formalism of Gropius. Uh, I don't think he ever built anything as good as the Bauhaus building <laughs> in, in Dessau in the 1920s. And uh, yeah, as, a, as a New Yorker, he also co-designed the building I hate more than anything else, <laughs> which is <laughs> was the Pan Am, now is the MetLife building that towers over Grand Central Terminal on Park Avenue. Uh, <laughs> that, but that's that, that that's... Uh, so it's personal is what you're saying yeah it's very personal <laughs> <laughs> it's personal it's not business right uh, <laughs> to reverse the term from the godfather uh, but these architects and we could say the same about many uh, art some artists and playwrights they were convinced they were building a new world that they weren't just designing new buildings with all the uh, forms uh, and materials, the the I-beams, steel I-beams, reinforced concrete, plate glass, uh, all, you know, all new, all which enabled them to then open up the feeling of the buildings, you know, instead of these heavy stone buildings that that were characteristic from the medieval ages to to 1920 more or less um they were convinced that this this openness this lightness this transparency literal transparency uh that you could see in and you could see out that that was part of the new democratic world of the 1920s and going forward. And some of them wrote very eloquently about that. Uh, Mendelssohn wrote very, very eloquently, embracing the machine age, not rejecting it as some conservatives uh, would do. Now, people think of Weimar culture and they think it's all about dismember that the art, for example, expressionist art, is all about dismembered bodies, is all about despair. There is plenty of that to be sure, and I talk about that a little bit in the in the book. But here too, I wanted to give what I think is a rounded, more rounded and more accurate picture of Weimar culture, that there was also um a sense of hope and of optimism. It would get dashed, it would get destroyed, to be sure, in the end. But for as long as it lasted, as long as they could produce in Weimar, it was there. So the creative surge during the Weimar Republic coincides with the proliferation of new technologies that raise questions about what these new art forms should take as a subject and where they fit in, you know, pardon the pun, the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. This is the great age of radio, the great age of film, Uh, both film, especially of course, had been invented before 1914 goes back in some ways to the end of the 19th century. Uh, radio a little bit later than that, but but this is the period when they flourish and the gramophone and records. And here too, everything gets politicized. So on 
the left, there's this sense that these new media are a force for democratization. It's, you know, it's in some ways we have a parallel, but we had, I don't know if we have any more, but we had in the 90s and the first decade of the 21st century, this kind of debate about the internet also. Some people in the personal computer, some head o- people head over heels enthusiastic with these new technologies as democratizing forms. And many people in Weimar Germany, especially on the left, thought of radio as something that could be democratizing, that would bring high culture, politics into the household. Uh, where for people who normally would not have access to these forms of uh, of art, uh, uh, of discussion, of literature, who also believe that the radio could be controlled locally or democratically, not by the state, not or not by big private companies. They're those who hope fervently for democratization did not win, not perhaps not surprisingly. Um, and the gramophone and records made possible the, the wide distribution of new music, dance music, the jazz music of the 1920s. Now here again, conservatives find this horrendous and they find it horrendous not just because uh, of the democratizing impact of these new media, but also because in the German philosophical tradition, an aesthetic tradition, there's the notion that one should have that, that a viewer or a listener should have an intimate relationship, an empathetic relationship with the work of art or the or the musical composition that could not be reproduced and that empathetic uh, relationship would take one to new heights of awareness or new heights of sensitivity and in this conservative critique all of which would be undermined by the mass production of such events through film through radio through through the gramophone this is one of Walter Benjamin's you know, great analyses of, um, of Weimar culture, uh, the work of art in the, in the age of its reproducibility. And he analyzed this you know, very brilliantly and how this meant something totally new that works of art, works of music could be reproduced so rapidly and so widely and could be then enjoyed by so many other people. And of course, the conservative critique is also that what you hear on a gramophone is is so such a poor reproduction of the live symphony orchestra that you hear in a symphony hall or in an opera hall. And so it marks a debasement of high culture. And of course, if one listens to recordings from the 1920s, there is something to that critique. 
but you know it marks the the new world <laughs> and not just in germany of course but germany is a f- prime exponent of the new more democratic mass culture so what is this idea of mass society and how is mass culture connected to it uh, the term mass society is probably invented around 1900 and it's a subject of constant analysis constant debate both in you know at a high academic level philosophical sociological level and you know in, in essence in practical politics as well and it 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 means the involvement the participation of large maybe you know the 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 entire almost the entire population in the activities of the day that high culture no longer remains the province of the elite politics no longer remain the province of the elite politics takes place in the streets uh, Weimar is a theater of mass politics in many ways. There are constant demonstrations in the streets from right and left. There are constant uh, conflicts, sometimes armed conflicts, in the early years and in the later years in the streets. So it does mark the mass participation in, <laughs> in everything virtually, politics, culture, film, of course, uh, you know, the, the, the great uh, movie houses of the 1920s, another prime example. And conservatives react with horror to this. Um, those on the left want more and more, more and more mass participation. But it does give a sense of tension and a sense of fragility to the republic that uh, will ultimately benefit the Nazis, who position themselves as a force of law and order, who position themselves as a force for German tradition as much as they will, you know, horribly revolutionize those traditions. Well, as part of the rupture with tradition and the broader spirit of experimentation at the time, Weimar also undergoes this sexual revolution. Yeah. What did the move away from Wilhelmite mores look like, and how does it find expression in the broader culture? Well, it looks like women out on the street uh, with shorter skirts and the famous Bubikov, shorter hair, women out in public, not always with male escorts, as had been typical of the past. It looks like uh, many, many, many publications on sex, sex manuals, uh, for example. So, uh, you know, a whole lot of talk about sex, a lot of talk about sex. What people did sexually, we don't know. I mean, that, that, you know, that, that, that we cannot measure. We don't have the evidence. We don't know whether people had more sex or had better sex because of all this sex talk. But what we do know is that they were talking about sex much more than ever before. 
And of course, Berlin is a place where homosexuality was was open, where there were you know, no gay bars that were a magnet uh, for Europeans, for uh, even some Americans. Uh, that was a part of the sexual revolution. But also, and very importantly, the, the sex clinics that were opened in many, many, many cities um, that enabled people to talk to physicians, social workers, nurses about sex. And the physicians who wrote about this describe what what they called a sexual misery that most Germans experienced. That sex was short, brutal, uh, male-oriented, and all it did was give males satisfaction and produce babies. And the reformers here sought to counsel women and some men as to how they could have a richer sexual life. And they and, and here there are direct parallels to the architects. Here they believed that a more fulfilling, more fulfilling, richer sexual lives was also the way to create a flourishing, a part of the way to create a flourishing democracy. So sex, too, was highly politicized. And there women could, and men could also get counseling and, uh, on, on family limitation and could often purchase condoms, which could not be advertised, illegal to advertise, not to produce, but illegal to advertise condoms. So they were you know, also a part of the great innovation of German life in the 1920s. For younger listeners, this may not sound so revolutionary, but I mean, this is a move straight from, you know, Victorian morality, lay back and think of England and Wilhelmite morality, not too far removed. Yeah, exactly. But I do also sometimes uh, laugh to myself when people write as if the sexual revolution began in the United States in around 1960 with the pill. <laughs> when, when, of course, they didn't have the technology of the pill in the 1920s, but they're writing as openly about sex as, as any American did in the 1960s, from the 1960s forward. Well, it's only appropriate that we return to the political consequences of all this change and experimentation. You visit the theme throughout the book, but you argue that it was not system collapse in the face of economic crisis and revolutionary thoughts sowed by the radical left, but a revolutionary and counter-revolutionary right supported by dem anti-democratic elites who, quote, killed the Weimar Republic. Right. How so? By the time we get to 1932, the Republic was a battered regime. And... The inability to master the Great Depression gave an opening to all of those hostile to everything that Weimar Germany represented. 
the uh, the republic in some ways was overthrown already in 1932 when we move into the era of the presidential dictatorship, as we call it, because the the um, the, the parliament, the Reichstag, was so fractured, it was unable to come to agreement on anything after the elections in 1930, when the Nazis for the first time emerged as a powerful political force. Prior to that, they had just been a marginal political group, insignificant, a police problem, not a political problem. Suddenly, they emerged in great, great force. But the Republic was, or the Republicans in the, with the small r, were also exhausted the defenders of the Republic had been harassed, attacked, indicted, assassinated for many, many years. And it was and they were they were exhausted. It was almost impossible for them, although some of them did, to, to summon up the vitality and the energy needed to defend a republic that had been so so battered for so many years. There were younger social democrats, for example, who wanted a more forceful, even violent action in support of the Republic in 1932, but they had no support from the party elders. So in this situation of crisis, of political paralysis, economic crisis, the old elite whom the Social Democrats left in their places of power, and that was the great mistake. They left in power the old officers, the landowners, the big businessmen, the high government officials. When they had had the opportunity in 1918-19 to remove them from their bases of power, from their positions of power, they did not do so out of their fear of Bolshevism primarily. And that was the great mistake that then came back to haunt them in 1932-33. So ultimately what happens is that the traditional elites make a pact, so to say, with the Nazis and in a legal fashion, in a constitutional fashion, the president of the Republic, Paul von Hindenburg, names Adolf Hitler Chancellor of Germany on January 30th, 1933. Of course, the old elites thought they could use the Nazis. The Nazis thought they could use the old elites. We know who won that game. Mm-hmm. Before we finish with the book, I wanted to focus on two of your conclusions that I feel deserve far greater public attention. First, that Weimar cautions us about the conditions in which democracy can flourish. And second, that Weimar demonstrates the limits of elections as a criterion for democracy. Right. Now we've laid out all the pieces here. I was hoping you could perhaps expound a bit on this. Well, there are a number of points here. First is that one can't, every issue cannot be politicized to the nth degree for a democracy to 
survive and to flourish. I mean, some things have to be routinized. You can't make every tax issue an existential question over the 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 life and death of the republic. Um, can't make uh, you know, whether traffic lights going to be installed or not. Can't be an an, an existential question. Some there, there has to be a modicum of consensus and agreement for a democracy to survive, and you know that did not exist in the end in the Weimar Republic. I, I would say though, the just to go back a, a step, if I may, that you know if one looks in 1928. That is just before the onset of the uh, of the Great Depression. That there was some moderating mo- uh, tendencies in the election. Uh, it's possible to imagine. I think, as hard as it is, if we can imagine that the the world economic crisis did not begin. Did not in 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 1929. I think it's possible to imagine the republic slowly gaining more support. After all, people do like good public housing. Maybe even some of those conservatives could have been won over to sex counseling clinics. It's possible to imagine that. But when the world economic crisis hit, yeah, then then it was almost all over. Whether or not it was the Nazis that would uh, pick up the pieces at at at, at the end, so uh, a democracy certainly needs some baseline consensus, which the Weimar Republic did not have. You know, elections are one criterion of demo- of democracy, but they are most certainly not the only ones, most certainly not. And this is, you know, my critique, one of my many critiques of American foreign policy, that the United States promotes the elections everywhere. But elections are only part of the story. You need to have a societal consensus of some sort about a democracy. And most importantly, you need to have the rule of law. The rule of law existed, but the judiciary was highly conservative. It was probably the most conservative part of the state bureaucracy and highly prejudiced toward the left. So that, um, you know, leftists were far more inclined to get thrown into jail for various things than were people on the right who were often given a free pass even when they were terrorists. So uh, this is my critique of not just mine, of course, of American foreign policy, which so often focuses only on elections, uh, as if forcing elections on a country will ensure that it will be democracy, almost bound to fail in certain circumstances. Well, before we go, what are you working on next? Um, In production right now is my book, titled A World Divided, A Global History of Nation-States and Human Rights Since the 18th Century. I have tacked back and forth over the last number of years between German history and global international history. And this is a book that 
takes Hannah Arendt's famous statement, who has, question rather, who has the right to have rights, and examines in different places around the globe over the last 250 years how human rights get established and what are the limitations of those rights when they are established. Uh, who gets excluded? Who gets included uh, in the charmed circle of human rights? National citizenship is always exclusive and inclusive. So wherever rights have been proclaimed, there are always some people who get excluded. So that's the book that will come out next August or September. Well, sounds fascinating. Hopefully we'll be able to have you back on to talk about that one too. <laughs> yeah, happily so. Well, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Well, that does it for us here at New Books in German Studies. Once again, we've been chatting with Eric Weitz about his new book, Weimar Germany, Promise and Tragedy. Weimar Germany is available from Princeton University Press as of 2018. And those of you who have found your interest peaked, you can find a link in the blog post to pick up a copy of what must be said as a beautifully illustrated, thoroughly enjoyable, and most importantly for the starving students out there, reasonably priced book. If you're interested in hearing Eric's thoughts on the historiography of the Weimar Republic, particularly the three landmark works published by Gay, Poikert, and Momsen, then pop on over to the Third Reich History Podcast, where you can find some of the nitty-gritty from this interview posted on our next episode. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and hope to see you next time. Until then. <laughs>